You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I am so excited to have Mickey Chapathy on the show today. Mickey is the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. There, he's responsible for advancing interoperability and the exchange of health information nationwide. In other words, Mickey owns the federal effort to make nationwide interoperability a reality. Today, we'll get his take on where we are with the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, otherwise known as TEFCA. He'll talk about how thoughtful software design can help address health equity, and we'll hear why he thinks today is the pivotal and transformative time in healthcare that we'll look back on for years to come. Welcome, Mickey. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. Really delighted to be here. Well, as you know, this show is focused on charting a better way in healthcare. And this is something that you have been laser focused on from a technology perspective. I know our audience is going to really look forward to hearing your take on this. So let's get started. Before we dive into the world of technology and healthcare, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started? Where did you go to college? Where did you grow up? I'm old, so this could you know take a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, grew up on the border of New Hampshire, um, right outside of Lowell, Mass, um, old mill town. My parents were both doctors, so I always had you know sort of the the medical influence and being a child of uh, Indian immigrants. Anyone who is uh, South Asian or Indian who is among the listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about. It was a big push to become a doctor <laughs> um, since they were both doctors and my grandfather was a doctor. And for whatever reason, I in college, I decided that really wasn't going to be for me. That I was more focused on policy level things um, rather than sort of the individual level focus, which at least in my mind was, you know, how I thought about uh, physicians. But I did get a little bit of breadth of perspective because my mother was a, a physician at the Veterans Health Administration for 35 years I and mean, career in mental health in particular, she's a psychiatrist and dealt, uh, you know, with Korean War veterans, Vietnam War veterans. So she had, you know, very difficult job in a very key area, obviously, but working for the big institution as, as an employee. And my father was on the opposite end of the spectrum, private practitioner. He was a general surgeon and a family medicine doc, which back at the time, you know, people don't do that now. Um, but back at the time, that was common. It was like the Marcus Welby kind of physician, right? So he had, you know, he was solo practitioner his whole career. But to fast forward, I went to, um, I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was actually pre-med all the way through my senior year, but I majored in political science. And that's when I decided I really wanted to focus more on, on policy. And then uh, started off um, working in the defense industry, which is where I spent, you know, like 10 years roughly. I mean, I went to grad school in between, but worked in the Pentagon for six years working on defense policy, which was primarily what I was, you know, kind of interested at the time, and then decided that wasn't really for me and made the pivot um, to what I thought was going to be academia. So I went back to school to get my PhD and thought I would go, well, thought I would teach. That turned out to be a very bad plan <laughs> for someone who was, you know, was, I was already married, had three, had three kids. It was like teaching wasn't really going to work. 
So I ended up in consulting, working for the Boston Consulting Group, a strategy consulting firm. And that's where I stumbled on health IT. Just the idea that you began your career in such a totally different space, that you are you are actually the presidential management fellow. And then you worked at the office. You said you said you worked at the office of the Secretary of Defense. And then what led you to a career in healthcare IT? Yeah, sure. So that was a pretty fascinating experience. I actually loved, I mean, I loved that experience and, you know, and it gave me a lot of lessons, life lessons, but also lessons that have helped me working in the federal government in my second tour here, even though it's, you know, three decades later or something. (laughs) Yeah. I spent most of my adult life in, in Massachusetts and followed part of your career when you were the president and CEO of the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative. That was the early stages of health information exchange, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it was the early stage of electronic health records, let alone health information exchange and data analytics. When I was at the Boston Consulting Group at the tail end of my time there, I mean, I didn't know it was the tail end, but you know, what, what ended up being the tail end, we started doing work out in Indianapolis, working for um, an organization that is now called BioCrossroads who um, were investing in the community. And one of the things they asked us to do, the BCG team, was to identify opportunities where you might have interesting overlaps in the health sciences area between business, government, and academia. One of the areas that emerged from that analysis was what was called evidence-based medicine. So that's how I got started, was writing that business plan, spent like two years commuting to Indianapolis, working on that, and then launching the company. And that's what led to my work at the Mass Health Collaborative, because right around then, you know, we started getting some attention nationwide and some of the, you know, the, the key leaders in Massachusetts, like uh, Dr. David Bates, Dr. John Palamka, John Glasser, a number of people here in Massachusetts. I'm sure you remember those names. Um, they, um, they were working with Blue Cross of Massachusetts, who was starting to formulate an idea of making a large financial investment into some type of uh, statewide experiment in health information technology. They didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, but they you know, sort of had a feeling that, um, you know, of course, Glasser, you know, Bates, Halamka were all sitting in leading academic medical centers. So they themselves had implemented electronic health records. But the big question was, how come this isn't kind of taking the market by storm? You know, there's a lot of value here and we're seeing banking investing in, you know, technology. Why, are, why aren't healthcare organizations? So that's when they came up with this idea of, Let's invest a large amount of money in an organization or some type of initiative to you know, sort of motivate some pilot projects to help us all learn about electronic health records, interoperability, and data analytics. And that was the founding of the Mass Health Collaborative with a $50 million financial contribution. I do remember that. And I remember that number too. From It was, yeah. it was an amazing time, right? Is there a situation or story that really sticks out in your mind that made you say, ah, that is why this interoperability, health information exchange is so important and something we have to fix. We have big safety issues in this country coming out of, you know, the Institute of Medicine study, um, to Error is Human, that had pointed out that we have a large number of medical errors in the country. And so David Bates and the team, you know, and, um, and, and Alan Gorla and Lucian Leap and a number, another, you know, number of these legendary figures so started saying, you know what, if we got electronic medical records into the hands of primary care physicians in particular, that could do a lot to improve, you know, sort of safety in general. And so that's what, you know, that was the initial focus was safety. And so it was really listening to them and listening to, you know, both reflecting on how many issues we had with respect to, you know, errors 
and the opportunity to say, you know, technology can help um, in, in helping to solve these problems. So it started with safety and helping try to reduce the medical errors in the system by automating the content? Yeah, you know, kind of the idea was that, you know, a lot of errors that we have are for, you know, for a number of different reasons, you know, sins of omission and sins of commission. You can have the sins of omission, which is about things that I should have known that I didn't know somehow. Patient is allergic to, to penicillin. I didn't know that. I prescribed the patient penicillin. If we all had electronic health records and that information was interoperable, I would have had that information. Or the, you know, uh, just, you know, basic decision support, like med-med, you know, uh, checking, for example, allergies, redundancy in, uh, um, in labs that uh, increases um, someone's radiation exposure, or not labs, but imaging that increases people's radiation exposure, for example. So it's those kinds of considerations that I think were, you know, sort of uh, a part of it. Obviously, the safety quality thing starts to bleed, you know, into each other. And safety is obviously an extreme version of quality in some ways. <laughs> So here we are. In 2021, President Biden tapped you to become the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, otherwise known as ONC. So you've reached the pinnacle at the intersection of health and technology. So what is it about ONC's missions that is personal or inspired you? I think that the thing that um, I really have great affinity with with ONC in general is part of it isn't that name coordinator. <laughs> Whereas I think back on, you know, things that I'd like to work on, it's, you know, even going back to the Pentagon and then through the Mass Health Collaborative. And even when, you know, like when I was at the, at the BCG, I find myself liking to find those opportunities that are complex in nature, but that require a great degree of collaboration among different parties. That's the thing that I've really loved about ONC is that it's very explicit in the name and in the founding of the organization, the recognition that there, you know, there, there isn't an agency for health IT that will drive all of health IT across the country, you know, from it in a top-down way that says everyone must use this EHR, everyone must do interoperability this way, everyone must, you know, is required to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, that may work in other countries. It certainly is not going to work in the US. And one of the things that, you know, that I learned in a very deep way in the healthcare space was again working out in Indianapolis, where you know seeing what they built out in Reagan Street, where so much of it was about the collaboration among among competitors, um, being able to get all those hospitals to agree to share their data in this repository, which was you know not based on it was finding the corner of you know where where they could all agree that okay we we don't have to compete on this particular thing, we're going to keep competing on ten million other things, but there's a set of shared you know things that we actually overlap. And we can, you know, come to, you know, sort of common terms on and find common ground and then move forward. And ONC is, you know, very much about that, whether it's with our federal agency partners or working with the market, it's finding those overlaps. The private sector is, you know, is a huge, huge part of it. And competition is a huge part of it. But how do we, you know, sort of figure out what is that public interest and how do we figure out how to align incentives and have hopefully judicious application of regulations of federal government, you know, policies and capabilities to help the market, you know, you know, sort of move forward in the public interest, but also have the private sector feel like they're doing well at the same time. Well, you certainly have landed at the epicenter of complexity and collaboration. All right, well, let's go to the nitty gritty. Creating a unified national 
Clinical Interoperability Network has been part of ONC's vision since its founding in 2004. Let's start with TEFCA. In 2016, the 21st Century Cures Act directed ONC to create a trusted exchange framework for advancing interoperability and the exchange of health information nationwide, also known as TEFCA. It's 2023. Where are we with TEFCA and what's next? I think we're in a really good place with TEFCA. It's been, you know, sort of a long road since, uh, since 2016. We uh, came in on in January 2021, so did a little bit of a reset and kind of revisited the question of, you know, do we still need TEFCA? Um, because, you know, four years had elapsed and, um, and you know, and it uh, clearly was, you know, sort of stalled in, in, uh, in many ways. And the market hadn't had anything communicated to it about what are the government's intentions here and what are the plans and what are the deadlines and what are the timelines. And my, you know, having been in the private sector for 20 years, obviously working closely with ONC and others and, and in the nonprofit sector, but still being in the private sector, my instinct was, well, you know, the government needs to provide an answer to these key questions to the market because people in the market are making investments. SureScripts is making investments and a part of those investments are going to be about, well, does TEFCA exist or not? Do I care or not? Um, and which, what does that tell me about the way I ought to be investing, right? I mean, the federal government, you know, SureScripts and other companies can't be blind to what the federal government plans on doing. And so I, that, that struck me as being just a huge gap in the TEFCA conversation. Um, and then we started to look at it and there were other things that, you know, that we kind of assessed that I'm happy to talk about in the details of the gaps that we had identified and in the market in general that we feel that TEFCA can help with. I think that, you know, that interoperability has made a lot more progress than the industry gets credit for. But that said, there are a lot of gaps still. And it was just my reflection, having been on that side of it, again, sitting on those boards and sort of seeing what the difficulties were, that a number of those next level gaps are really difficult to tackle without having the federal government more involved, both as a partner, as well as providing perhaps additional guidance or nudging or encouragement, or maybe even regulation down the road. And so anyway, so that that's why TEFCA as a model and as a construct felt very important for us to keep going with. Can you talk about those gaps? I mean, I know there's the six use cases and we can talk about that, but but the gaps are really interesting. I heard you recently talk about them. Not to, you know, sort of focus on church scripts uh, exclusively, but just, you know, and, and I know e-prescribing is not the only thing that church scripts does, but if we just focus on e-prescribing, um, which is the origins of, of you know, sure scripts, is that I, you know, to me, that's one of the runaway successes of our interoperability story. I mean, it's just, you know, it's amazing, right? And there are all sorts of other issues that, you know, may relate it to it, whatever. But if you just look at where are we with, you know, today, electronic prescriptions are just something that everyone just takes for granted. Um, no one even questions it. And so, you know, so I think that that's, you know, been a tremendous part of the success story. But overall, we've got provider provider exchange for treatment purposes. Where those gaps are, are the next level, and that's where it's hard. So the number of those gaps, one is if you look at the nationwide networks, something like, and we're going to dig more into these numbers, but something on the order of 25 to 30% of hospitals, for example, are not connected to an eight to one of the nationwide networks. And we think that, you know, the, that that's probably, uh, you know, uh, multiple factors. One is a lot of market confusion. They don't know, you know, eh, well, is it my local HIE? Is it the state HIE? Is it, you know, Commonwealth, Carolina? care quality, e-health exchange, you know, which, where should I plug in? Ah, it's too hard for me to figure out. I'm just a small hospital. I'll just sit here and live in my own world for a while. But then there's also, they're under-resourced often. Maybe they're on less large footprint vendors. 
So, you know, maybe the vendor doesn't offer, you know, kind of the, you know, the full solution to them. There's a variety of things that might come into play that uh, leaves them out. But the important point is that that's a gap, 25 to 30% of hospitals. Another big gap is that payers don't participate in these networks. So, and, and I think that the sources of these different gaps have different sources. All of them, though, would speak to the private sectors having difficulty accomplishing these in the world. The under-resourced part, right? There's more that arguably then hopefully the federal government can do to help provide something to be able to get to address that 30%. But it's not something that the private sector will go, go after on its own because those places don't have the money um, to do it. Payer side, it's, you know, I would argue, and this is Mickey Tripathi speaking, that it's the competitive jockeying that happens in the private sector between payers and providers that have prevented payers from being able to fully participate in these networks. And I think the cost that we all pay for that is huge. It's a big hidden cost to all of us. Because that results in incredible amount of manual chart chasing uh, that is a burden on the payer, it's a burden on the provider, and it adds cost to everyone. So I think that's a really big gap. Um, and then public health is the other big one that I would point to. Um, you know, we've just been through a pandemic experience. You know, we've lived through this experience where public health agencies were literally not able to plug into networks that are doing 50 million transactions per day. 50 million per day, which is a tremendous number. And you have public health agencies sitting on the side, outside, banging on the glass and just told, nope, you can't, you're not allowed by, by, by these specific rules. A lot of those rules weren't arbitrary. It had to do with regulatory issues, interpretations of HIPAA, all of those things. Totally understand that. But again, that speaks to the federal government having to play a role in helping to sort that out because the private sector can't figure out the different regulatory policies of 64 jurisdictions, common interpretation of HIPAA all of that. Oh, absolutely. P- public health just uh, was the poster child for where interoperability was not working during COVID. I mean, just a little reflection of this is we worked with Dr. Stephen Lane during during COVID um, who used direct messaging to automate the reporting of COVID cases to public health because they were you know, every single COVID case had to be reported on paper to public health authorities, which was just a time killer. Nuts. Really yeah, nuts. It's, it is nuts. It is. It's crazy. Well, you know, as you think about gaps, have you thought about, I mean, we do, we think about the gap also in the culture and training. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. I have two quick examples uh, as well. Um, one is with immunization data. And during it was actually during COVID. And I was talking to someone at a hospital in Boston and had said, hey, have you, you know, you know, how are you getting immunization data? And they're like, well, the immunization registry is really hard to work with. And so we're you know, having difficulty there. And I said, well, how about the interoperability networks? You know, do those, do those, you know, have those worked? You know, care quality and you're on a particular vendor and, uh, you know, and those are, I know they're active in Massachusetts and um, care quality in Commonwealth and, you know, all that. And he was like, no, he's like, those, those haven't helped at all. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's surprising. And then a half hour later, I got an email and he's like, correction, my bad. I didn't know. I went and looked, did some queries over those networks. I found out where that's available, did some queries, and got back a ton of information that was really valuable. <laughs> um, so, um, And then the other one is actually a more personal experience with my mother who recently broke her hip. And she um, was going from a hospital to a rehab hospital literally less than a mile down the road so they right they're in our, they're interacting all the time patients going back and forth all the time they're on two major EHR systems but different EHR systems and right in front of me 
they are printing out the chart to hand to the ambulance driver for her to give to the other side. And I'm looking at them like, you're doing this right in front of me, like right in front of me, you are doing this. And then got to the other side and watched as they took that, scanned it, and that uploaded it into the EHR. I mean, an e-fax actually would have been more efficient um, for them. Then I asked them on the other side, I was like, hey, have you guys ever heard of, you know, like Commonwealth or Pure Quality? Because I know you're connected. I mean, I know you are connected. And you were just like, no, that would be fantastic though. That was the response I got. It was like, God, I would love to have a system like that. It's like, well, I'm dealing with my mother right now, but you definitely have a system like that. So anyway, to your point, I think that I think a big gap for us in interoperability and in healthcare IT is that implementation piece. How do we get it all the way down to the front line so that the front line is their first instinct is to say, use these electronic systems, and then hopefully they'll disappear into the background, right? That they don't even think about it anymore, but their instinct isn't to fax, which it is today, because that's the only way they know how to do it. And can't cover everybody, but eventually, you know, the, that learning has to happen. Well, one of the things I'm hoping with Tefka is that, to the extent that there's market confusion, right? Because even with that, when I was with them, again, one was on one, big, one, was on one vendor, one was on the other vendor. So you had the Commonwealth Care Quality thing going on. And then and it became complicated right away. And two, you know, I'm dealing with my mother, and I was like, "No, there are these networks." And then, you know, then people were like, "Oh, well, what is that?" And I was like, "Well, you're on this vendor, so you have, you know, your care quality. This one's coming well, but they're connected." And you know, all of a sudden, you're like in this thing, and you can see their eyes going, "Oh boy, this is like." But it, you know, my hope is that with this public-private kind of approach here, that you just say it's Tefka, it's all under Tefka, and you were able to communicate that as an industry, and people just have this sense that. As long as it's all connected under the Tefka umbrella, I actually don't fully care which ven- which network my vendor is connected to, nor should I have to care. Well, let's turn to information blocking, another big one, right? Um, last year, the Cures Act information blocking provisions came into effect. In a health affairs article, you said calling for sharing all electronically accessible health information is what is somewhat of a paradigm shift for interoperability. Let's talk about that. What is the paradigm shift? We're seeing that interoperability is starting to grow, but we believe that there is a paradigm shift that's needed that creates a sense of obligation to share information, not a, you know, a structure that says, well, you can if you want, it's up to you. So that's the paradigm shift is to say, rather than have the default be I'm allowed to share information, but you know the accept it'll be you know sort of I need to um, proactively decide to share the information case by case essentially. What the 21st Century Cures Act does is it says no, it's actually the opposite. The default is sharing information unless you have a good reason not to, and so it specifically says that ONC should define information blocking and which is the interference with the access exchange of use of information and define exceptions to sharing of information, which by itself, right, is a whole paradigm shift. It's basically underneath that, what underlies that is an assumption that, oh, information is flowing. What are the exceptions that would allow you to not have the information flow? Um, I think one other way that we can think about, you know, this paradigm shift, which is really interesting, is that the High Tech Act that, you know, that um, gave the authority to spend what was ends up being $35 billion in incentives for electronic health records. If you look back at the High Tech Act, there's no definition of interoperability in that entire law. 21st Century Cures Act has a definition of interoperability. It's the first time in statute that it says 
here is what interoperability is. And it has a couple of a couple of you know subparts, but one of the you know the third sub bullet under the definition of interoperability is interoperability is when people aren't interfering with information that should be shared. I mean that's on you know that's I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says. Um, so it's you know that's what I mean by this paradigm shift. It really is flipping on its head and saying you need to be sharing information unless you have a really good reason not to. So how is it going? I think it's going really well. I mean. I'm always going to say that, right? No, but I do think it's going. I do think it's going really well. I mean, it isn't as if there aren't bumps on the road, right? There, I mean, you know, there are going to be bumps on the road along the way. There's going to be issues related to adoption. There's going to be issues, the toughest issues, which are the issues related to culture change, and workflow and process change. I mean, you and I were just describing, you know, getting people to not fax things. What about getting people to just say, "Oh, the information is just going," until you know, unless I have a good reason for it not to go. That's a huge culture change, and I guess. The thing that I like to point to when people describe, you know, wow, this is hard. This is going to be a big deal. It's like, well, look at the 21st Century Cures Act. They did that on purpose. They didn't say, oh, just make a small change here and a small change there. Right? 21st Century Cures Act says, no, you need to fundamentally rethink the way you were thinking about this problem, like fundamentally. And if you don't think that that is going to require a lot of work and a complete mind shift <laughs> and a complete change in your policies to up and down, then you haven't really paid much attention to what's been going on here and, and certainly aren't paying attention to what the 21st Century Cures Act says. That certainly is a full paradigm shift for sure. So let's go to health equity because I know that's another major thing on the ONC agenda. Sure. Yeah, there's a number of different dimensions to it. One is just on the core data piece. Um, which is, you know, how do we even have a way of consistently and reliably catching information that would allow us to identify health inequities? Just, you know, basic race, ethnicity, language data, uh, data for example, um, SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity data, uh, for example, where, where you want to be able to say, how do I even have the information first and foremost to be able to identify where there might be issues um, and, difference, and differences in um in healthcare status, in healthcare delivery, in public health um, identification and programs, um, you know, it's not a coincidence that you know that the first you know studies that came out during the pandemic of the different differential impact of the pandemic on uh, blacks versus non-black um, uh, Americans, for example, um, took you know months and months and months and came out of academic organizations before that came out. It was because we couldn't, we didn't have the data you know, reliably and consistently being pushed through our systems to be able to quickly do the analyses that they are able to identify where are those issues. So I think that's the, you know, that's the first thing is to be able to get that data. And we've, you know, worked hard on incorporating data, um, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's sensitive to that in the US CDI, the US core data for interoperability that allows us you know, to, be, to at least be able to say that EHR systems that are certified are required to support the capture of that data. And that starts us down the path of being able to say, all right, now I have the mechanism for doing that. How do I actually motivate people to actually do that in a consistent manner? It's back to culture change and behavior change again. And the design perspective. I mean, that's one of the things that we've talked about is, which is more a concept, is this idea of you know health equity by design is to say, you need to think about these issues from as you're designing implementation processes, software, you know, workflows, because it's, it's, you know, if it's not baked into the design of those things, then it's only going to be quite by coincidence that you don't have unintended consequences downstream that do lead to, you know, health equity issues. 
Do you have any success stories on the health equity side? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, to me, I think a couple of things. One is the incorporation of these additional data elements in, you know, in the US CDI, for example, is, you know, kind of one example of where we're headed with that. We're doing a lot of work on looking at algorithmic bias. Um, we've, we've posted a number of blogs, um, a blog series looking at the, you know, the important issue of, you know, how do we have appropriate incorporation of and use of algorithms and all the benefits that they can confirm? Because I think there are a ton of benefits. And on net, I would argue more benefits than there are costs. But that doesn't mean that you are blind to the costs. And particularly as it regards health equity, I think some of the short examples you gave, you know, it's sort of at the beginning of this question, I think, you know, we kind of pointed to there are, there are real equity issues that have been surfacing from algorithms used in ways that seem trivial. But then if you don't take a design perspective to that, you uh, you end up doing either, uh, you know, sort of exacerbating or perpetuating existing health equities, inequities, or exacerbating them. So the, you know, very well-known study um, that came out, the looking at care management in particular, right, that was ended up because of the way the algorithm was constructed, ended up devoting more care management resources to people who had better insurance because it was keying on cost. And so it was saying, oh, a high cost person from a healthcare perspective must be a person who has higher complexity and therefore needs more care management, being completely blind to the fact that, wait a minute, some people who are high cost are high cost because they have good insurance. <laughs> and there are many people who are in the same healthcare situation but they don't have good insurance, therefore they're not high cost, but they need the resources even more because they don't have the good insurance as the backstop, right? And so that, unfortunately, that people identified that and said, all right, we need to tweak that algorithm. But that lead just, just makes you think, wow, where else is that now? And the answer is, it's probably in almost every algorithm that we're rolling out unless we are deliberately thinking about it in advance. What are the top three biggest problems you see in healthcare today where you might think, hey, there clearly is a better way? Uh, oh, boy. Uh, only three, huh? <laughs> <laughs> three um, that you can think yeah. of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, underlying all of these to me is the pivot that we need to be able to do in healthcare from systems, processes, uh, mindsets, that are born of bricks and mortar and paper and making the flip to digital first approaches to things where we just start to rethink, completely rethink, you know, the ways we're doing things to say, oh, wait a minute, if we started with the premise that all of the data underlying is actually bits and bytes and everyone who I'm communicating this information with is actually all electronic, they can send, receive, they can receive computable data, they can do it according to standards. If we kind of rethought all of it along those lines, then we really are starting to build the 21st century digital infrastructure that we want, right? And as we know, process process change always lags technology change. So we've had a tremendous amount of technology change and the process change is now what's bogging us down. So you start to think about, you know, sort of the general opportunities. So what are, you know, one of those opportunities, I guess, you know, in three, you know, three uh, categories, I would say one is just the patient, you know, sort of interaction side as a general category. Think about the ways that, you know, we think about patient engagement right now, quote unquote, is, you know, is pretty rudimentary. You think about the way prior auth works today and some of the more innovative internet-based types of health plans have, you know, started doing things like this, which is to say that, you know, the, the older health plans aren't doing this, but I think we've seen it more 
in you know more of the newer entrants, which is basic things like Kairos. Why is I as a patient wouldn't I have an ability to track where my prior auth request is? Why is that just something that is a mystery black box and no one knows the answer to my question and I just have to sit and wait here until that prior auth comes through versus a system that just said, oh, here in my app, your prior auth has been given to your payer. Your payer has, you know, it's gone from this department to that department. It is in the final, you know, stages of we are expecting that it will be out in two days. Contact your provider to schedule your next appointment, right? I mean, that's just like basic customer service stuff that, you know, that is just shocking in some ways that we, you know, we don't have. And then obviously we talked about public health, but that, you know, in and of itself is like, you start to look for what might at least at the out, uh, you know, on the outside seem like low hanging fruit. And I know it's all complicated and it's complicated with a bunch of things, but the fact that, you know, we have every jurisdiction building point to point interfaces to all the same EHRs, each with their own, you know, different twists on things. I mean, Church Coast is a nationwide organization. So you see this because I know you do report reporting to public health, right? I mean, that just seems like insane. Again, not because any of the people are well-intentioned or are stupid. It's because it's an artifact of a very decentralized federated structure that we have that I think we now have the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute. Again, if we start thinking digital first here <laughs> and not think about oh, let's just take all those paper forms that we had and just make them electronic forms. It's like, well, no, but that is not a digital first approach. <laughs> that, that is a paving over the cow pass approach. How do we you know, start to shin the corner on that? And again, you know, and part of the issue is in healthcare, it's so fragmented so that you know people only see slivers, right? A provider organization only sees a sliver of a person. And in some ways they don't feel like, I really want you to be thinking about me all the time, right? But you think about other industries and it's those gaps that they want to dive into, right? They're like, oh, we hate those gaps. We actually want to be, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's where you want to be unsubscribing to their emails. It's like, stop contacting me, right? But, they, you know, it's kind of a whole different mindset, which is, no, no, I don't want people to have gaps. I actually want them to be completely engaged with me all along the way. And, uh, and that's a little bit of part of the, you know, the mindset shift that we need to have. Where do you see things working today? What's exciting you? I think that, you know, even though we're at the beginning of the information blocking, uh, you know, kind of thing, um, and there are a lot of pieces left to be put in place, I think that just the, you know, the um, people starting to get the recognition that, okay, we really do need to change here. I think that's really starting to happen in terms of, you know, again, that doesn't mean that it's happening in every setting, but I think there has been, you know, sort of a mindset shift when you speak to, you know, people of a sense that, all right, you know, things are different. We need to start, you know, sort of doing that. I feel really good about. I think with Tefka, I think we've made a tremendous amount of improvement uh, or a tremendous amount of progress where we're able to start to say that can be that nationwide network that starts to be the umbrella for us not to be able to have, you know, not only to have uh, a certain type of uniform interoperability across the country. It doesn't solve every problem, right? There's always going to be solutions, sub-networks, applications that do that value-added stuff on top. But the idea is everyone ought to just have the same basic uniform access to basic information, regardless of whether you're in Nome, Alaska or Sarasota, Florida, right? That should just be a common expectation that we all have. And to the extent that you want to build, you're at least having a place where you can have these discussions of nationwide interoperability and what's the best way for us to do that. We don't have that right now. So I'm really, you know, very, very hopeful for, you know, for Tefka. We just announced six of the, you know, the first six approved QNs. We expect more. But the first six QNs who have been um, approved 
to move to implementation, all of them committed to doing that in 2023. The other thing that I would point to, which is probably less obvious to people, the CMS strategy of having APIs on the on the provider, on the payer side, right? I think that that's huge as we start to think about where that starts to build out the Fire API ecosystem because you have providers and payers now having um, a set of APIs based on the same standards, you know, going forward. I think that that's a, you know, it's sort of a huge step forward for all of us that will pay out in years, not tomorrow, not ju- not tomorrow. And then finally, sorry, last point is um, this is something that, that is probably less, uh, you know, sort of visible to a lot of people, but there is a policy that this secretary, Secretary Becerra put into place in July, which is a an HHS-wide health IT alignment policy that requires that all HHS agencies incorporate in all of their payments, uh, in all of their payment, uh, any program that they fund. So whether that's a grant or a contract or whatever it is that they're, or any policies, they're required to base it on standards that have been approved by the department. That's not something that, that people will notice tomorrow, but I think five years from now, we'll start to notice that, hey, these federal programs are much more aligned than they were before. And here are the benefits we see in that alignment. So this work is hard. It's complex. What keeps you going? I always ask, because I'm fascinated by inspiration, what keeps you going and where do you go for inspiration? So the inbox is never empty in this job. So there's always something to react to, um, which is certainly true. Um, But there's also so much, you know, incredible opportunity to do really meaningful things. I mean, you start to think about, you know, where we are with health IT. And in particular, at this moment in time, for me, is, you know, the, you know, kind of, we spent a lot of time laying the foundation for a digital infrastructure, you know, $35 billion, electronic health records. I was, you know, in my previous companies, you know, very involved in actually implementing electronic health records, working on the ground with provider organizations, just getting them in place. Um, And being able to sort of say, you know, we didn't do that just for electronic billing and to get rid of file cabinets. We did it with higher level aims in mind of being able to provide better healthcare or you know, and have an inflection point in the way we think about healthcare and healthcare delivery and the efficiencies and the increases in quality and increases in safety and increases in affordability and health equity, that all of that and the increases in medical science and the ability to advance medical science, all of those were a part of the promise. And so what keeps me going is I feel like, you know, I've just, just got this incredible privilege at this particular point where the dust has settled on the foundation and we now have the opportunity to say, let's steer us now toward those higher level ambitions and just the ability to be here at this particular moment in time where you get to do some of that steering, which is obviously going to take time, right? It's a multiple year thing. I mean, we'll never stop steering. I mean, we'll always be you know, sort of going. It just feels like we're going to look back and think on this particular time as saying, wow, that was a really pivotal time. And what keeps me up you know, um, and it keeps me, you know, sometimes at four in the morning waking up is thinking, wow, I don't want to look back and say, you squandered that time. You had that opportunity and there was something you didn't think about that you could have been doing that would have helped the industry move forward in really significant ways. Um, so it's both the opportunity and the fear, <laughs> particularly under this leadership. I mean, I have to say that working, you know, under this president and particularly, you know, under Obviously, I don't interact with the president every day, but, uh, you know, working under this secretary and this deputy secretary who have been very supportive of, you know, what we're doing of ONC, recognizing the importance of health IT and the importance of this particular moment in time has just been, you know, just has contributed to that sense of we've got some real opportunity here. Let's go. 
that's truly inspirational. Thank you and your team for all the work here. It's, um, it's going to benefit the whole country. What is one thing you really want to leave listeners with? Yeah, I mean, I guess that, uh, you know, is, um, you know, particularly for this group of listeners, um, you know, who are listening in here, who are all health IT people who have a high degree of sophistication and understanding of how the industry works, both how healthcare works and how IT works. I guess it would be to, you know, to, to appreciate this moment in time that we're in. Um, because I think it's really easy. I mean, all of us do it. We're just working and you don't sort of see, right? You're just working incrementally every day. And often it's only in hindsight that you look back and you say, oh, that was a significant period of time. And I didn't realize it at the time, but now here we are five years later, I think for all of us to start, you know, to look now and say, wait a minute, we now have the opportunity to build that future and the future is only going to get built by us. So it's like taking that time and even however trivial say, wait a minute, if we weren't going to do this on the assumption that we were faxing back and forth or that we had this paper form that had to go back and forth, how would we do it? And what can I do today to actually improve that situation? I know it seems really trivial, but I think that's the only way this stuff gets done. Oh, that's a great way to end. So thank you so much for the discussion today. Lots to look forward to. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Mickey, it was so great to have you on the show today. Your enthusiasm for your work is infectious and your thoughtful, collaborative approach means you are clearly the right person for the job you're in. I also appreciate your frankness. You said, if you didn't think implementing the 21st Century Cures Act wasn't going to be hard and require a total mind shift, you clearly haven't been paying attention. At the same time, you mix your frankness with excitement and hope. I can't deny my pride when you characterize SureScripts as a runaway success for interoperability at scale. As for what inspires you and keeps you going, you shared that we've got to appreciate this very special moment in time and how exciting it is that we get to build this digital first future together. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart Talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.